Our teaching text is Matthew thirteen forty four to 45. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The word of the Lord. Good morning. My name is Jason. I, along with my family, am a member here at TGC. Uh, the coolest thing about that video was seeing that Eric Marshall literally does not age. Uh, <laughs> Caleb, on the other hand, a couple LBs. Uh, start podcast now. Hey, I'm Jason. Good morning. I'm a member here at TGC. <laughs> what an awesome video. <laughs> All the cool things God is doing. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm a member. I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a pastor, but um, the, the Clardys had an awesome opportunity to take a last-minute spring break vacation, and I guess the Lowe's were doing the same, and so the fish-style worship set, I guess, was out of the question, and so here I am. Um, <laughs> and um, we're going to continue, I guess, uh, or we are. I don't guess. We are. I prepared it. We're going to continue our Eastertide series uh, that we've been working through, where we look at the prophecies of Isaiah and compare that to, uh, to Jesus and to uh, the, the promises that were fulfilled in his life. And so we're going to spend the next, you know, call it 20 minutes or so, working through the parable that we just read. And we're going to, uh, we're going to talk about the idea that in the parable first, uh, something of great value was found. And so what was found? Uh, Jesus was found. The kingdom of heaven was found. This Jesus that was found was worth everything. A man sold all that he had in order to attain it. Uh, the merchant sold everything in order to have it. And so now through Jesus, we have uh, access to the promises that he brings us. And when we sell all that we have, we do it with joy because the thing that we're accessing, the thing that we're that we're, we're gaining and we're entering into is worth more than anything uh, that we have. And when we do it, we actually find joy. So we give it all up in joy, and then we have and find joy. The thing I would suggest, though, is that oftentimes we miss out on the joy. We miss out on the treasure because of the things around us and the things that, we're, that are competing for that narrative. And instead, we, we lack a little bit of restraint, restraint around our purchases, restraint around um, our serving of ourselves and restraint around uh, our schedules and our busyness and the baggage of our life that sort of fills our time and our hearts. And so uh, I want to walk through all of these things uh, with you, and, um, and uh, I hope and I pray that uh, you will be encouraged and refreshed just as I was as I was preparing it. So let's pray for a minute, and then we'll dig in. Heavenly Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the folks gathered here. Thank you for spring and the promises that, um, that it brings of, of new life and, and flowers and birds and, and things budding and blooming and blossoming. Thank you uh, of sort of the neat little parable that that is in and of itself. Pray, Lord, that you will uh, use this time as a time of refreshment and encouragement. Pray that you'll guide our collective hearts to you and that you'll um, open them and have us receive what you'll, what you'll have for us today. 
Amen. All right, so let me set the scene for you here in Matthew 13 that, we, that this parable is found in. Um, a couple of things are happening. First, Jesus, is uh, he gets up or whatever time of the day it is, and he walks outside and he heads, da- he heads down to uh, the lake. And he's sitting at the lake, and a crowd begins to, begins to form around him. And the crowd is actually so large that Jesus hops in a boat, and he sort of steps off of the shore a little bit, and the boat becomes the platform by which he begins to speak. And Jesus starts teaching in parables. The first parable he tells is the parable of the sower. Farmer throws out some seeds, some hit rocks, some hit shallow ground, uh, some root and, and sprout up. He finishes that and the, par- and the disciples are like, hey, what's, you know, what's that mean? What's that all about? And so Jesus uh, tells them, he explains to them uh, that in, and that in this uh, parable and in the parables that he's telling are the kingdom uh, to the secrets of heaven. And this in and of itself actually fulfills a prophecy. Then Jesus tells uh, another, another parable, the parable of the weeds. A farmer plants some seed. Uh, his enemy comes and plants weed along with it at night. Not, does not plant weed, does plants weeds. Uh, I, <laughs> I was really self-conscious about that and it happened, so... Um, start podcast now? All right. <laughs> All right. Then he tells them another parable, the parable of the mustard seed. Uh, so you have this thing really tiny. It grows real big. So big birds can perch in it and all that stuff. Uh, then he tells them the parable of yeast. The woman mixed yeast into the flour. It grows into big loaves of bread. Jesus is just cranking out parable after parable after parable. And uh, Matthew actually says that Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So he gets done. Maybe it's hot outside. He wants water. I don't know. But he goes in the house. Disciples follow him in. And uh, they're like, hey, what is with all of the parables? What do these mean? And what's going, what's going on? Um, so Jesus begins to explain what the parables are about. And again, it's about the secrets to the kingdom of heaven. And as, he explaining it, as he's explaining it, he actually launches into the parable of the hidden treasure. And then he says again, and he launches into another parable, the parable of the pearl. He then wraps that up with another parable saying again, the par- and he tells the parable of the net. People go out fishing, they bring in all these fish, they keep the good ones, they throw out the bad ones. In Matthew 13, Jesus rattles off seven different parables. And in between them, Jesus keeps asking are you listening? Are you really listening? Parable, are you listening? Are you really listening? Parable, are you listening? Are you really listening? And he gets all done, and I love how Eugene Peterson sort of uh, paraphrases it. He gets all done, and he looks at the disciples, and he says, are you starting to get a handle on all this? And um, I, love, I love this scene. I love this image where he's, he's just talking to them all day. Parable, again, parable, again parable, another parable. Are you getting it? Are you getting it? He gets all done. Are you getting a handle on this at all? And a couple things are unfolding here in this chapter. Uh, Three things, actually, um, that are important for our talk today. Uh, First, as I've mentioned, Jesus is working in these parables to explain what the kingdom of heaven is. Second, this in and of itself is fulfilling a prophecy from Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah 6. And Jesus actually explains it in the chapter. This is why I speak to them in parables, Jesus said. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You will be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and, and turn, I would heal them. 
So he's talking about the kingdom of heaven. He's fulfilling a prophecy in Isaiah about parables. And then he's actually fulfilling another prophecy in Isaiah around the idea of joy. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. So in both parables, we see uh, uh, something being found in plain sight, and someone's discovered it, and they go, and they, they use everything they have in order to access it. And the man uh, in the field, he does it with great joy. I'm guessing the merchant was pretty pumped also. So we have them acting in joy, and what's cool is when you access Jesus and when you have, uh, when you have access to the kingdom of heaven, you actually, you yourself have joy. Let's look back at Isaiah again in chapter 12. In that day you will say, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord himself is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. With joy you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Isaiah foretells of joy. We see, in the, man, we see the man in the parable with joy give up everything he has in order to access it. And I think we can safely say that he also found joy. So this begs the question then, what is joy? Dallas Willard, one of my favorite uh, Christian authors and philosophers, defines joy as a pervasive sense of well-being. And I think what happens is we often confuse the idea of happiness and joy, and we conflate them, and we mix them together, and we kind of consider them to be the same thing. Uh, Happiness is an emotion. It comes, and it goes, uh, and it's fleeting, and you can actually you know, considering a normative mental state, you can actually manufacture happiness for yourself. You like ice cream, you get ice cream. You like cake, you get cake. You like potato chips, you have pizza, you get it. You watch a movie. Uh, it's spring, you go outside, that's awesome. Maybe it's snowing, you light a fire. All of these things work to manufacture little bits and nuggets of happiness, and they're awesome. Um, what psychologists are actually beginning to uncover, though, is that there's two types of happiness. Uh, Harvard psychologist and author Dan Gilbert says, natural happiness is what we get when we get what we wanted. And synthetic happiness is what we make when we don't get what we wanted. Synthetic happiness happens in New York all the time. It's called apartment shopping. So you're living in your apartment, your lease is up, six foot ceilings, that's kind of annoying, only one window, no natural light, toilets actually in the shower. And you're like, man, I don't know. I think we should look for a new place. Hop on Street Easy every single night. There's nothing out there. A couple nice ones, but they're all out of our price range. So you decide to stay. What happens when you stay? Man, six-foot ceilings. So cozy in here. And you know, natural light. My gosh, look at all the lamps and the, and the way it just forms the shadows on the wall. And, you know, toilet in the shower, gosh, you know, we're so busy in the morning. That, that morning routine really just is sped up through this. What an awesome apartment we have. It's fantastic. It's worth the total price we're paying for it. That's selective happiness. <laughs> um, and I've, this is synthetic also. Uh, and this is, or sorry, that's, that's synthetic happiness. And, and that's the same as natural happiness. It's, where, it's a state of mind that subconsciously we're choosing to enter into. Um, but joy is different. Joy is a constant. Joy exists in your old apartment, exists in your new apartment, and exists everywhere in between. Dallas Withard, who I mentioned before, uh, near the end of his life, was giving an interview, and they, they were recording it. Um, 
and he's sitting there, and, and they don't know it. I don't think no one knows it at the time, but his body is riddled with cancer, stage four cancer. He's literally dying as he's giving the interview. And I just imagine him thinking about uh, his wife of all these years, his daughter and his grandkids, and he's just chatting, and the idea of joy comes up. And he says this, joy cuts through everything. Even your moments of passage of this earth will be one of great joy. And he starts choking up. That's the continuity. The continuity of life lived now in the action and presence of God with his people. Joy is constant. It existed before the creation of the universe in the being of God. It existed in creation. God created it. He said it was beautiful. And in that, there was joy. Jesus extended that joy, and we have access to that joy now, and it will continue with us as we pass from this earth on to the next. Happiness is contingent. Joy is constant. So how, do, how does all of this relate to the kingdom of heaven? Well, I would submit that joy is very much a part of beauty, and beauty uh, very much a part then of our aliveness. And we, when, when we miss out on joy, when we miss out on beauty, we actually are doing the exact opposite of being alive. We're dying. And our insides and our soul and our core being are in a state of entropy. But the kingdom of heaven offers us life. It offers us aliveness. And so we, we instead focus on something else and we become stressed out and downtrodden and haggard and we're just worn out to the core. And that's because of this state of entropy. But when we're living in the kingdom, we have access to all of the treasures, we have access to the joy, and we have access to life, and we have access to being alive. And so then the question to me is, what is robbing us of our joy? What is robbing us of our aliveness? And what is keeping us from accessing the full benefits of the kingdom of heaven? As I was reading through the parable, I was struck by three particular things, and I'll, I'll, work, them, I'll work through them here over the next couple minutes. First is the idea of consumption. It's really hard not to read these two parables and not think in a monetary context. There's a pearl, there's a hidden treasure, we're in New York City, we're apartment shopping, there's money all around us that we're trying to figure out how to get and use, and here it is again in this parable. And so when I think of that, I think of the idea of how saturated we are in this modern times around consumption. I think it's actually one of the greatest lies Uh, that we're faced every single day. The lie that says, hey, buy this, not that. This deodorant, those pants, this car, that hat, whatever it is, this will make you happy. And actually, through that purchase, you can communicate something else about yourself to others. You can begin to, you can begin to put on a, a, an air about yourself, and people will read into that, and they'll think certain things of you, and you can measure yourself against others based on the things that you're buying. So there's a tangible nature to all of this, there's something that's happening when, when we do this, and we're entering into it every day, consciously or subconsciously, whatever the case may be. Uh, but if pressed, most of us, of course, would admit that deep down, none of this matters. Our, our material things don't define who we are, but instead it's something different. Paul counted everything as, quote, worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus. The man sold everything to get the treasure. He gave it all up because it meant nothing compared to what he found hidden in plain sight in the field. A brand can't sell you joy. Joy is constant. A brand would go out of business if it could sell you joy because they need you to re-up 
They need you to keep purchasing. They need you to buy it over and over and over again, and, and they need it to break and go out of fashion and all of these things. Society says, buy now and be happy, but the kingdom of God says, give it all up and find joy. The kingdom of heaven offers you something much richer than material possessions or fleeting happiness. It offers you a persistence, a persistence of joy. The second thing that occurred to me was the idea of self. And these are sort of interrelated. In fact, all three of these things are interrelated in their own way. But it's the idea of self. This one uh, hits a little close to home for me. Um, If you don't know, uh, my wife and I have four kids, two biologically and two through adoption in that order. So we had two kids and then uh, we decided to adopt. And so when Heather first approached me about the idea of adopting, we had two. (laughs) And uh, so it wasn't so much adoption, but it was a sort of second or third second to third kid. And I really, I mean, I really just, God had blessed us. I felt like my quiver was full and that I, I could not figure out why we would need three children. Um, but <laughs> Heather, in her infinite wisdom, uh, pushed me to, uh, <laughs> to wrestle through this. And so eventually we made our way down to an adoption meeting. And I wasn't super pumped about it. I was still wrestling through the idea of having more kids. And we're sitting there and they actually printed out an Excel spreadsheet, and they hand it out to you, and then they read through the Excel spreadsheet. So the only thing more boring than an Excel spreadsheet is someone reading to you an Excel <laughs> spreadsheet. And it was awful. I mean, you're sitting there, and you're like, this is the worst. How, you're, you're trying to talk to me about the hope of adoption, and this is your method? This is your plan? Um, anyway, uh, <laughs> So uh, the woman is reading it to us, and I'm sitting there, and I'm just counting, uh, counting the ceiling tiles, and I'm thinking through all of the red tape and all of the money and all of the time and um, the, you know, the invasive interview process, and I'm sitting there, and a little voice pops into my head, and it says, if you weren't so selfish, your life would be so much richer. And it's true, I am selfish. The thought itself actually is a little selfish, right? Like, eh, if you kind of back off a little bit, you'll be a little bit better. I'm like, okay, that's, yeah, I can get my head around that. Um, but uh, it's true. I focus on myself. I focus on the things that are going to be important to me, the things that I think will help me out, the things that will make my life easier. That's a big one for me. But hidden behind the selfishness in that moment was one of the greatest gifts I've ever received, which was two daughters. And I think about all the other things that I miss out on because of my selfishness. All of the access, all of the things that God has in store for me that I put behind whatever I see right in front of me. It's like that C.S. Lewis thing. You're sitting on the beach making mud pies, ignoring the, the ocean right in front of you. In Christ's example, we uncover the supreme ethic instituted at the cross. It is the ethic of sacrificial love, one person for another, an ethic that considers others first. John applies Jesus' sacrificial ethic to each of us when he says, lay down our lives for our brother and sister and neighbor. And then there's a compounding effect to this love ethic. It's not that we love God, it's that he loved us. He did it first. This is pure love, that the great I am would condescend himself to come to earth, to be with his creation, to live with us, and to die. How awesome is that? In Ephesians, Paul describes a life that emulates the love of Christ. A progression that begins with humility, continues into sacrifice, and finally expresses itself through a life of love that moves into a posture of service. As we walk in love, as Christ loved us and gave himself himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is tough. It's tough for us to back away from all of the things that society is pushing us to do in order to promote ourselves, in order to get ahead, in order to be liked. But the kingdom of heaven never, never, never ends up looking like anything else. It's always paradoxical. Because Jesus says, 
that when we walk away from ourselves, when we walk to him, something strange happens, something mysterious happens. We actually find ourselves. We find out who we were meant to be, and we become alive. Society says serve yourself and find fulfillment, but the kingdom of God says deny yourself, and you will save yourself. The kingdom of heaven turns you away from self and towards Christ, then others. In this, you find yourself, and in return, have joy. The third idea that struck me was this idea of busyness. Um, I frequent Dizzy's on 8th Avenue quite a bit. Um, and uh, if you've ever been there, there's a plate glass, is that it? Plane? Plate glass window? And you can see out the other side. Uh, and you can see people walking by. And I was there on Thursday, and um, a woman from our church uh, happened by, and she stopped and began talking to a homeless gentleman there. And I could see out, but she couldn't see in, and I just watched the scene unfold. And for three or four minutes, the woman from our church uh, talked, to this, talked to this guy. And she smiled, and she was listening, and she nodded politely, and she just genuinely was taking her time talking to this man. And in this exchange, I saw a day filled with errands and kids and diapers and feedings and all of the stresses and hecticness that come with that. And I saw it put on pause in order to, in a moment, exemplify the love of Christ to a stranger. So when we're talking about busyness, it's oftentimes we think of it in terms of simplicity. We clear out our calendars. We, uh, we don't buy too much. We, do, we, we kind of strip back the things that I just talked about, and we make space, and we lead a simple life. And I think that's part of it, of course. But I think it's maybe just a hair different, or maybe it goes a hair, hair deeper. And it's around this idea of emptiness, which is something I think a little different. Uh, Japanese designer Kenya Hara talks about emptiness, and he uses the metaphor of a, of, a, of a knife. And he talks about a Western knife versus a Japanese knife. A very beautiful, well-designed Western knife has, you know, a fantastic blade, and then out of it comes a handle. And the handle is simple in and of itself, but it's ergonomic. It kind of suggests the way that your thumb and your hands are supposed to sit on the handle. The Japanese knife, on the other hand, has just a bamboo or wooden cylinder that comes out of the knife. They are both simple, but the Japanese knife is empty. The Japanese knife allows the chef to hold it in whatever way the chef wants to in order to get the uh, effect or cutting motion or whatever they need. So in this emptiness, we see something different begin to happen. Um, When the woman from the church stopped in front of Dizzy's for a few minutes, she didn't see the day's agenda. She saw what was right in front of her. She proceeded with an emptiness waiting for God to... to fill it and to use that time however he saw fit. And God took it just like a a chef might take a Japanese steak knife and held her and used her in whatever way he saw fit in that moment in his perfect will. Hara says emptiness holds the possibility of being filled. Finding emptiness seems incredibly difficult. We're all busy, and so that's one aspect of, of it is time. The other aspect of it is baggage and just the things that fill us up on the inside, uh, the, the sort of uh, uh, awkward home life maybe that we had growing up, um, the marriage that can't quite seem to get its sea legs, the re- relational fracture between uh, you and your friends or whatever it is. And there's other stuff that fills us up too. Maybe we're really good at our job. Maybe we make a lot of money. Maybe we have a lot going on that is, uh, that is positive. And so pride begins to seep in. And these things can fill us up as well. So there's a time construct, of course, but there's an emotional construct as well. God wants all of that. He wants wants you to give it all to him in order to access the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Hera continues, actually, the example of the knife and shifts his attention to a bowl. A creative mind, in short, does not see an empty bowl as valueless, 
but perceives it as existing in a transitional state, waiting for the content that will eventually fill it. And this creative perspective instills power in the emptiness. In that exchange, the woman at Dizzy's gave up everything she had in that moment. She gave it up with joy, and in that moment, she found access to and had and entered into the kingdom of heaven. She found, the, she found the promise, she found the treasure sitting right in front of us, all of us, that was hidden in plain sight. Society says be productive and fill your day with as much as you can and you will increase output and you'll make more money. The kingdom of heaven says empty yourself and be filled with the Holy Spirit. The kingdom of heaven says empty yourself, receive me, wait on the Lord, be still, abide. The kingdom of heaven isn't filled with busyness, instead we abide and in this we find joy. So the kingdom of heaven is now, but it's also not yet. We can see it, we can partake in it, we can be in it, but we still have forces pulling us away from it and keeping us from accessing it. And oftentimes those things, they're sitting right in front of us and they look so much more shiny, they look so much more important than the kingdom of God. But God says, no, give away everything that you have in order to access this thing that I have for you. In it, you will find joy. In it, you will find the promises that I have for you. So as we go about our week and as we reflect here in communion, I just want to leave, leave you with one simple question. What areas of your life need surrendering? What are we holding out on? What are we not getting rid of? What are we not, what is, what is um, not being put aside in order to have the treasure, to have the pearl? And my hope is that our church in the next 10 years will sit here absolutely empty. We'll sit here like this, we'll have our arms outstretched and our hands open, and we'll ask God to fill us, and we'll wait, and we'll abide in love, and in that, God will use us in ways that we can't even imagine, and that we don't even know yet what they are, but we'll be faithful in it, and we'll have joy in it, and we'll know that there'll be a completeness and an aliveness that happens when we do that. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask that we just sit and reflect on this for, for a few minutes, and then Josh is going to come and lead us in communion. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for this, thank you for this church body. Thank you for 10 years of inserting a little bit of aliveness, a little bit of joy into New York City. Thank you, Lord, that we have, um, we have access to the greatest treasure ever known, and that is you. It's, it's incredibly difficult to give it all up. It just doesn't make sense. <laughs> Nothing about it makes sense. But we're robbing ourselves when we don't. So, Father, we ask that throughout this week, you'll just show us little moments that we can give up, little things in our lives that we don't need, that instead can be replaced and filled with you. Help us to patiently Abide, patiently wait in love for you. And we ask that we would sit empty. Father, we love you. We're thankful for our time here. And we're thankful for this church. And we're thankful for all of the promises that we have access to through you and through your work on the cross. Amen.